Sound. Sound. Music. Acoustic. Noise. Sound. I have a favorite sound, I think. Sounds. Sound. Ultrasonic. How they listen. Just a little boop. The one place where it sounds the best. You're listening to sound. Sound matters. <laughs> a couple of years ago, I was lying on my back in a snow-covered clearing in a forest. The forest is somewhere in the middle of Sweden, actually. Okay. <clears throat> Here I am. Though it could pretty much have been anywhere. Time to describe the scene around me. And we're talking deep snow here. It's up to your waist deep. I am about halfway up a fairly small mountain. Somewhere in the middle of Sweden. In the middle or start of February. I'm lying on my back, watching the snowflakes fall from the sky. I'm looking for some peace and quiet. And, uh, I think I've found it. <laughs> and I'm trying my very best not to hear anything at all. There's snow all around me. I'm in, at the edge of a patch of huge pine trees that are all covered in snow. It's snowing very, very slightly. This is about as peaceful as it can get anywhere on planet Earth. And... The reason I was doing this is that for the last 20 years or so of my life, I've been what you might call a sound person. I've been a sound engineer. I've worked with music, films, commercials when I had to, radio, sound design, stage stuff, audio guides, radio... And for the past few years, I've been making a lot of podcasts. And it's quiet. So, me on the snow here. Why? In a way, it's me trying to reset the clock. To find a really genuinely quiet place where there's nothing to listen to. I'm trying to find a kind of audio ground zero, if you like. I'm just going to put the microphone down for a bit get a little bit away from it and record the sound of nothing happening. I'm starting with trying to hear nothing at all in order to find out where sound, where listening, begins, in a way. Anyway, I did hear a couple of tiny birds twittering away. And where I'm sitting, I'm sitting in uh, tracks in the snow, which have definitely been left by couple of great big elks. My name is Tim Hinman, and what you're listening to is not the sound of a couple of great big elks disappearing into the forest, but a podcast, a brand new podcast called Sound Matters. Sound Matters. This is the very first edition of Sound Matters, and it will be followed by a whole season of shows during which I'm going around the world in search of sound stories and, well, stuff to listen to, stuff that matters. The one thing that's always followed me through the years in my work is a sense of constant amazement and discovery when it comes to just how little most of us seem to know about the sound of the world around us and just how amazing and rewarding an experience it can be sometimes, getting your ears opened up to something you've never heard before. 
This is the first show in the season and is rather ambitiously titled The Sound of Life Itself. In this show, I'm going to be looking at how we humans fit into the big picture of sound, the soundscape of planet Earth. And here to help me is the man who made the recording you can hear in the background. Hi, Tim. What's, uh, what's happening? What are we doing here? These are wolves in the Algonquin Provincial Park in Canada. The man who made these recordings is called Bernie Krauss. Okay, my name is Bernie Krauss, and um, I live in Northern California, and I am a bioacoustician, which means I record organisms, however small and however large they may be, from viruses to large whales. That's what I do for a living, if you want to call it a living. Bernie Krauss is something of a living legend in the world of sound and nature recording. But his long career didn't start in nature. Pretty far from it, in fact. Uh, I started off as a musician, and after university I was a professional musician, working first with guitar and performance with a, an American folk group that was pretty famous at the time. And after they broke up in 1964, I came out to California to study electronic music. I met a fellow by the name of uh, Paul Beaver from Los Angeles, and together we bought one of the first Moog synthesizers off the line and introduced the Moog synthesizer to pop music and film on the West Coast. And we played with many of the groups of the 19, late 1960s and 70s and on many, many film scores. Probably the most famous film score Bernie composed for was Francis Ford Coppola's classic Apocalypse Now. Not that that went entirely according to plan. I was fired eight times, by the way. Despite being at the very top of his game musically, things didn't quite feel right for Bernie Krause in Hollywood. But when I finished Apocalypse Now, I'd had enough of Hollywood and uh, went back to school. I quit all my music work. I had a company with 56 employees. We were manufacturing professional audio gear for recording studios. And I just quit all of that, sold the company, went back to school, got my PhD, and have been working outside ever since. I love working with animals, and I like working outside. So for the last 40 years or so, Bernie Krauss has been exploring an idea that first really came forward in the late 1970s, the idea of the sound of the world as a soundscape. Soundscapes being just like landscapes, in that they're all unique and identifiable, and containing many different sources of sound. Bernie can explain it better than I can. What I've done in my work is to try to drill down a little bit into the idea of the soundscape to identify what the main sources are. And the first we've come up with is called the geophony, or the natural sounds that occur in any wild habitat, waves at the ocean shore, movement of the earth, things that are non-organic. And these were really the first sounds that were ever heard on the planet, the first sounds that were ever generated on the planet. But of course, there was nothing to hear them until organisms evolved. Okay, now wait for it. Life on Earth is just about to begin. Oh, 
Obviously, this is a reconstruction, as we're unable to get a recording of the actual moment when life began on Earth, but it may have been something a bit like this. Somewhere in the primal ocean, a volcano erupts and kicks off the process of life as we know it. It's not much fun at first. Very simple organisms bubbling around in a kind of primordial soup. Fast forward about three billion years. We need to do that, really, in order to get to the age of fish. And things start to become a little bit more interesting. Probably the age when things started to sense as well with something we might recognize as an ancestor to our ears. Although it's still pretty far off. Still not very recognizable until those first creatures started to crawl out on land and needed to find ways of communicating with each other. The sounds that organisms make are what I classify as the biophony, bio meaning life and phone from the Greek meaning sound, so sounds of living organisms. And then finally, there are all the sounds that we humans make, and I put them in a separate category because it's important to make the distinction between the biophony or just the natural sounds that occur that are non-human and the sounds that we humans make because they're very special and they also take up a lot of the acoustic spectrum Now, the acoustic spectrum Bernie is referring to is pretty much everything that we could call sound. Our own human ears do a pretty good job of hearing sounds between about 20 hertz, that's a very deep bass sound, and up to about 20,000 hertz if we're lucky, and that's very, very high-pitched sounds. But of course, we all know that the animal kingdom uses a much wider spectrum of sound from the deep, deep bass, which we call infrasound, all the way to the extremely high frequencies, which we call ultrasound, way beyond what we can hear. The point here is that the soundscape, like the landscape, contains all of it. Just like a landscape has got valleys and mountains, just like a landscape has animals that only live in certain parts of it, some on the mountains, some in the valleys, some in the trees, and so on. The soundscape is a place that is occupied by all kinds of living creatures, they need to find space in it. They need to find their own space. And just like in the landscape, every creature finds its own way to exploit whatever space is not being used by someone else. That's what evolution does. Well, we've just come up with a new thesis, which we're kind of exploring now. And one of the things that I noticed in my recordings and also while working in the field is that the natural soundscape or the biophonies follow Darwin's timeline of evolution. And by that I mean, if in a tropical rainforest, for instance, you begin to listen at around one or two in the morning, the first thing you hear are the insects. And the second category of species that you hear are the reptiles and amphibians. Followed at dawn, just before sunrise, with the first bird sound. 
and then mammals. The structure of the soundscape evolves in pretty much that way in every healthy habitat on the planet. Very much like uh, Darwin outlined it in his uh, basic thesis. And the soundscape shows that. So it's way cool. The natural soundscape is way cool, says Bernie. And I have to agree. But we're yet to get to stage three of the description of the soundscape, which starts when our ancestors started banging a few rocks together, and which since then has grown to dominate the whole world, really. This is what Bernie calls the anthropophony. The anthropophony. Anthropophony? The anthropophony. Yeah, I can hardly say it. Bernie can do it better than me. And so the anthropophony, anthropos meaning human and uh, phone meaning sound again, is made up of really two subclasses. The first of these is the controlled sound that we make, uh, music, theater, language, for instance. And the other is chaotic or incoherent sounds that we generate through our technology or simply by virtue of our presence. And this is what we sometimes refer to as noise because it's very stressful. It doesn't carry a lot of information in it that's useful. And so I've, I've divided the anthropophony into really two sections, that which is controlled and that which is you know, kind of under the category of noise. That's the idea of how the soundscape is structured. It's what I call the anatomy of the soundscape. Yes, folks, that's where we live, in our own noisy world. It's a long way from this. To this. In the last couple of centuries, the industrialization of the world has, for many of us, pretty much erased our connection with what we might call the natural soundscape. And even if the kind of modern person that lives in a city generally hates too much noise and complains about it a lot, just think of when your neighbors are having a party, there really just is no getting around it. People find it stressful and intrusive. But how did we get so far away? How did this happen? Bernie Krauss has an idea. Well, we live in a very materialistic culture and, and also a visual culture. And it's only those things that we can hold in our hand or those things that we can see with the eye that are important to us. Uh, in our culture, that's the way we've learned about the world. And so sound, because you can't see it, and you can't hold it in your hand, doesn't have the same value. It's not a structure that we can gauge for its importance to us in the same way that we would hold a pen or drive a car or, you know, wear clothes, whatever it is that we find important to us. So sound is ephemeral. 
And it's what Walter Murch, the famous sound designer uh, for Coppola and also for Lucasfilm, now working independently, Walter Murch calls the shadow sense. And because it's a shadow sense, it hasn't got much value to it, uh, at least not to us, because we don't rely on it that much. We don't think we rely on it that much. We don't think we rely on it that much. However, drop yourself into the middle of the Amazon jungle. Here you go. That's you, on your own, lost and afraid. Well, we still do have some instinctive skills built in, some things that will help us recognize things in the soundscape, even a soundscape as unfamiliar as the jungle. Now listen carefully, and see if you can spot any danger. On hearing that sound, the sound of a jaguar actually, very close, recorded by Bernie Krause in the Amazon, most of us would likely freeze or run like hell. But if you'd grown up here, had always lived here, deep in the jungle, it might be a different story. All I know is that those groups that still live connected to the natural world, not us, certainly, but those groups that do, use these forest sounds, these ambiences, biophonies, for almost every aspect of their lives. They're informed by that. They use it as a natural GPS with which they navigate through the forest at night. They know exactly where they are by the way that the forest is expressing itself bioacoustically. Not only do they know where they are, but when I was on a hunt with the Hivaro in the Amazon Basin many years ago, they walked through the forest without torches or lights of any kind. They couldn't see the stars through the canopy because the canopy is too dense, and uh, the canopy of the forest, that is. And they were guided on these hunts by the subtle changes in the biophony. They not only knew what animal was a quarter of a mile away, maybe uh, half a kilometer, they were able to tell what kind of animal it was, whether what direction it was heading in, whether it was worth following. <laughs> this is all at night without nothing to see. And uh, they were able to make that determination by simply listening to the soundscape. We have no ability to discriminate sounds in that way because we've lost that. We're a visual culture. Even if it's lost to us now, the ability to read the world with our ears, it's still in us all, somehow. All our ancestors, thousands of generations, spent their lives out in the open, long before anyone ever thought of civilization. They spent their lives immersed in the sounds around them. The sounds that we could hear but we couldn't see, the origins of them at night, were used as kind of a basis for us to imagine how and why we're here. And our religion came out of that. Our music came out of that. The structure of the soundscape of the biophony in wild places is still very clearly defined where each species has its own bandwidth and this kind of organizations and the rhythms that come from it, the melodies that come from 
the, the natural soundscape inspired us to create music and language and and so on i mean it just it's an endless realm of discovery the richness of information in the natural soundscape is something that bernie krauss has been able to use to demonstrate quite how destructive human influence can be on wildlife our noise and machines sit heavily all over the range of sounds used by animals, all over the soundscape. They make it more and more difficult, and in some cases impossible, for animals to use sound for communication, for protection and for survival. It seems bizarre in a way that we couldn't have thought of this before. Even so, it may be too late for us already to save many natural habitats. We really haven't got a lot of time to make that reconnection again, uh, given the rate at which uh, these soundscapes are disappearing. I should add to that, like over, well over 50% of my archive recorded since 1968, almost 50 years now, comes from habitats that no longer exist. They're either altogether silent or so radically altered by human endeavor uh, that the soundscape can no longer be heard in its original form. A soundscape that is too quiet, or silent, is a soundscape that represents an ecosystem that is dead, or close to dying, at least it's not well. Awareness of the impact of noise on nature and on ourselves is only recently becoming apparent. Bernie's own personal experience of more than 40 years in the field is that good, healthy soundscapes are in fact pretty good for good, healthy humans too, as long as we can keep quiet enough when we're in them. I asked Bernie what the biggest lesson was he's learned from listening to nature. Ah, that's really a good question because my drive to do this is mostly personal. And the reason that I've done it is because I found that by doing it, I was able to stem the, the problem that I had with what's called attention deficit disorder, which means I can't concentrate on things very well. I have a really hard time doing that. I have a terrible case of dyslexia. It's very difficult for me to read and write. It takes a lot of effort to do that. And the attention deficit disorder makes it really hard for me to concentrate on anything for any period of time and to finish projects that I begin. But working with natural sound has changed all that. In the field, I found that I was able to be much more relaxed and calm, that I didn't have the, the, the feelings of stress that I normally have if I'm just living in an urban environment and, and dealing with the everyday machinations of, of life. So this has really helped me a lot, and personally, the reason that I've done it is because it's made a big difference in my life personally. It made me feel good. So why not do something that makes you feel good? Feeling good through listening. Something many of us try to achieve by listening to music, usually. Relax, put some good tunes on, should do the trick. But here again, Bernie's discoveries are a bit surprising. We were trying to initiate a study back east at Harvard 
which was going to test and see which sound environments, acoustic environments, created less stress for people. Much to our surprise, one of the things that we found was that music tends to induce stress because it's culturally biased, whereas natural soundscapes have no cultural bias at all. And so sounds of water at the ocean, uh, sounds of water in the stream, sounds of springtime in different parts of the world really induce feelings of, of reassurance and, and tranquility for people, whereas the sounds that humans make, the noise that we have in our cities and so on and so forth, just introduces stress. There's no way we can get beyond that. And that's about it from Bernie Krause. I suggest you check out his amazing collection of recordings, which you can get through his website, www.wildsanctuary.com. You can also find out a lot more here about Bernie's work in understanding the natural world and the sound of, yeah, well, life itself. The mission is to impart as much of this information and as much of the findings that I've come across to a much wider audience, whether it's through science or through the arts. And my desire is to make sure that this wonderful universe is opened up to everybody. That brings me to the end of this, the first edition of Sound Matters. I hope you liked it. I'll be back soon with a season of shows featuring stories from the world of sound. Everything from violin builders to sonic tractor beams. From the sounds of the future, to the sounds of the very ancient past, the sounds of war and destruction, from horror movie sound designers, to the sounds of the deep ocean, and maybe even attempt to record the quietest sound I can imagine, sound of a single snowflake landing on the ground. This podcast was produced, edited and written by me, my name is Tim Hinman, research and invaluable editing assistance from Andrea Rangecroft. Sound Matters is made possible due to the support of B&O Play. And you can find out more about them at boplay.com. That's B-E-O Play in one word. Sound Matters.